The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 3, Chapter 29. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 29. Division of the Roman Empire between the Sons of Theodosius. Part 2. The impartiality which Stilicho affected, as the common guardian of the royal brothers, engaged him to regulate the equal division of the arms, the jewels, and the magnificent wardrobe and furniture of the deceased emperor. But the most important object of the inheritance consisted of the numerous legions, cohorts, and squadrons of Romans or barbarians whom the event of the civil war had united under the standard of Theodosius. The various multitudes of Europe and Asia, exasperated by recent animosities, were overawed by the authority of a single man, and the rigid discipline of Stilicho protected the lands of the citizens from the rapine of the licentious soldier. Anxious, however, and impatient to relieve Italy from the presence of this formidable host, which could be useful only on the frontiers of the empire, he listened to the just requisition of the minister of Arcadius, declared his intention of reconducting in person the troops of the east, and dexterously employed the rumor of a gothic tumult to conceal his private designs of ambition and revenge. The guilty soul of Rufinus was alarmed by the approach of a warrior and a rival, whose enmity he deserved. He computed with increasing terror the narrow space of his life and greatness, and as a last hope of safety, he interposed the authority of the Emperor Arcadius. Stilicho, who appears to have directed his march along the sea coast of the Adriatic, was not far distant from the city of Thessalonica, when he received a peremptory message to recall the troops of the east, and to declare that his nearer approach would be considered by the Byzantine court as an act of hostility. The prompt and unexpected obedience of the general of the west convinced the vulgar of his loyalty and moderation, and, as he had already engaged the affection of the eastern troops, he recommended to their zeal the execution of his bloody design, which might be accomplished in his absence, with less danger, perhaps, and with less reproach. Stilicho left the command of the troops of the east to Gainus the Goth, on whose fidelity he firmly relied, with an assurance at least, that the hardy barbarians would never be diverted from his purpose, by any consideration of fear or remorse. The soldiers were easily persuaded to punish the enemy of Stilicho and of Rome, and such was the general hatred which Rufinus had excited, that the fatal secret, communicated to thousands, was faithfully preserved during the long march from Thessalonica to the gates of Constantinople. As soon as they had resolved his death, they condescended to flatter his pride, the ambitious prefect was seduced to believe that those powerful auxiliaries might be tempted to place the diadem on his head, and the treasures which he distributed with a tardy and reluctant hand were accepted by the indignant multitude as an insult rather than as a gift. At the distance of a mile from the capital, in the field of Mars, before the palace of Hebdomon, the troops halted, and the emperor as well as his minister advanced, according to the ancient custom, respectfully to salute the power which supported their throne. 
as Rufinus passed along the ranks and disguised, with studied courtesy, his innate haughtiness, the wings insensibly wheeled from the right and left, and enclosed the devoted victim within the circle of their arms. Before he could reflect on the danger of his situation, Gainus gave the signal of death. A daring and forward soldier punched his sword into the breast of the guilty prefect, and Rufinus fell, groaned, and expired at the feet of the affrighted emperor. If the agonies of a moment could expiate the crimes of a whole life, or if the outrages inflicted on a breathless corpse could be the object of pity, our humanity might perhaps be affected by the horrid circumstances which accompanied the murder of Rufinus. His mangled body was abandoned to the brutal fury of the populace of either sex, who hastened in crowds from every quarter of the city to trample on the remains of the haughty minister, at whose frown they had so lately trembled. His right hand was cut off and carried through the streets of Constantinople in cruel mockery to extort contributions for the avaricious tyrant, whose head was publicly exposed, borne aloft on the point of a long lance. According to the savage maxims of the Greek republics, his innocent family would have shared the punishment of his crimes. The wife and daughter of Rufinus were indebted for their safety to the influence of religion, Hare Sanctuary protected them from the raging madness of the people, and they were permitted to spend the remainder of their lives in the exercise of Christian devotions, in the peaceful retirement of Jerusalem. Under the name of a favorite, the weakness of Arcadius required a master, but he naturally preferred the obsequious arts of the eunuch Eutropius, who had obtained his domestic confidence and the emperor contemplated with terror and aversion the stern genius of a foreign warrior. Till they were divided by the jealousy of power, the sword of Gainus and the charms of Eudoxia supported the favor of the great chamberlain to the palace. The perfidious Goth, who was appointed master general of the East, betrayed without scruple the interest of his benefactor, and the same troops who had so lately massacred the enemy of Stilicho were engaged to support against him the independence of the throne of Constantinople. The favorites of Arcadius fomented a secret and irreconcilable war against a formidable hero who aspired to govern and to defend the two empires of Rome and the two sons of Theodosius. They incessantly labored by dark and treacherous machinations to deprive him of the esteem of the prince, the respect of the people, and the friendship of the barbarians. The life of Stilicho was repeatedly attempted by the dagger of hired assassins, and a decree was obtained from the Senate of Constantinople to declare him an enemy of the Republic, and to confiscate his ample possessions in the provinces of the East. At a time when the only hope of delaying the ruin of the Roman name depended on the firm union and reciprocal aid of all the nations to whom it had been gradually communicated, the subjects of Arcadius and Honorius were instructed by their respective masters, to view each other in a foreign and even hostile light, to rejoice in their mutual calamities, and to embrace their faithful allies, the barbarians, whom they excited to invade the territories of their countrymen. The natives of Italy affected to despise the servile and effeminate Greeks of Byzantium, who presumed to imitate the dress and to usurp the dignity of Roman senators. 
and the Greeks had not yet forgot the sentiments of hatred and contempt which their polished ancestors had so long entertained for the rude inhabitants of the West. The distinction of two governments, which soon produced the separation of two nations, will justify my design of suspending the series of the Byzantian history, to prosecute without interruption the disgraceful but memorable reign of Honorius. Gildo, the brother of the tyrant Firmus, had preserved and obtained, as the reward of his apparent fidelity, the immense patrimony which was forfeited by treason. Long and meritorious service in the armies of Rome raised him to the dignity of a military count. The narrow policy of the court of Theodosius had adopted the mischievous expedient of supporting a legal government by the interest of a powerful family, and the brother of Firmus was invested with the command of Africa. His ambition soon usurped the administration of justice and of the finances, without account and without control. And he maintained, during a reign of twelve years, the possession of an office from which it was impossible to remove him, without the danger of a civil war. During those twelve years the provinces of Africa groaned under the dominion of a tyrant, who seemed to unite the unfeeling temper of a stranger with the partial resentments of domestic faction. The forms of law were often superseded by the use of poison, and if the trembling guests who were invited to the table of Gildo presumed to express fears, the insolent suspicion served only to excite his fury, and he loudly summoned the ministers of death. Gildo alternately indulged the passions of avarice and lust, and if his days were terrible to the rich, his nights were not less dreadful to the husbands and parents. The fairest of their wives and daughters were prostituted to the embraces of the tyrant, and afterwards abandoned to a ferocious troop of barbarians and assassins. The black or swarthy natives of the desert, whom Gildo considered as the only guardians of his throne. In the civil war between Theodosius and Eugenius, the count, or rather the sovereign, of Africa, maintained a haughty and suspicious neutrality, refused to exist either the contending parties with troops or vessels, expected the declaration of fortune, and reserved for the conqueror the vain professions of his allegiance. Such professions would not have satisfied the master of the Roman world, but the death of Theodosius and the weakness and discord of his sons confirmed the power of the Moor, who condescended, as a proof of his moderation, to abstain from the use of the diadem and to supply Rome with the customary tribute or rather subsidy, of corn. In every division of the empire, the five provinces of Africa were invariably assigned to the west, and Gildo had to govern that extensive country in the name of Honorius. But his knowledge of the character and designs of Stilicho soon engaged him to address his homage to a more distant and feeble sovereign. The ministers of Arcadius embraced the cause of a perfidious rebel, and the delusive hope of adding the numerous cities of Africa to the empire of the east tempted them to assert a claim which they were incapable of supporting, either by reason or by arms. When Stilicho had given a firm and decisive answer to the pretensions of the Byzantine court, he solemnly accused the tyrant of Africa before the tribunal which had formerly judged the kings and nations of the earth, and the image of the republic was revived after a long interval, under the reign of Honorius. The emperor transmitted an accurate and ample detail of the complaints of the provincials, 
and the crimes of Gildo to the Roman Senate, and the members of that venerable assembly were required to pronounce the condemnation of the rebel. Their unanimous suffrage declared an, an enemy of the Republic, and the decree of the Senate added a sacred and legitimate sanction to the Roman arms. A people who still remembered that their ancestors had been the masters of the world would have applauded with conscious pride the representation of ancient freedom, if they had not since been accustomed to prefer the solid assurance of bread to the unsubstantial visions of liberty and greatness. The subsistence of Rome depended on the harvests of Africa, and it was evident that a declaration of war would be the signal of famine. The cause of Rome and the conduct of the African war were entrusted by Stilicho to a general, active and ardent to avenge his private injuries on the head of the tyrant. The spirit of discord which prevailed in the house of Nabal had excited a deadly quarrel between two of his sons, Gildo and Masazel. The usurper pursued, with implacable rage, the life of his younger brother, whose courage and abilities he feared. And Masazel, oppressed by superior power, seeked refuge in the court of Milan, where he soon received the cruel intelligence that his two innocent and helpless children had been murdered by their inhuman uncle. The affliction of the father was suspended only by the desire of revenge. The vigilant Stilicho, already prepared to collect the naval and military force of the Western Empire, and he had resolved, if the tyrant should be able to wage an equal and doubtful war, to march against him in person. But as Italy required his presence, and as it might be dangerous to weaken the frontier, he judged it more advisable that Masazel should attempt this arduous adventure at the head of a chosen body of Gaelic veterans, who had lately served and extorted to convince the world that they could subvert as well as defend the throne of a usurper. Consisting of the Jovian, Herculean, and the Augustan legions, and of the Nervian auxiliaries, of the soldiers who displayed in their banners the symbol of a lion, and of the troops which were distinguished by the auspicious names of fortunate and invincible. Yet such was the smallness of their establishments, or of the difficulty of recruiting, that these seven bands of high dignity and reputation in the service of Rome amounted to no more than five thousand effective men. The fleet of galleys and transports sailed in tempestuous weather from the port of Pisa in Tuscany, and steered their course to the little island of Capraria, which had borrowed that name from the wild goats, its original inhabitants, whose place was occupied by a new colony of strange and savage appearance. The whole island, says an ingenious traveler of those times, is filled, or rather defiled, by men who fly from the light. They call themselves monks, or solitaires, because they choose to live alone, without any witness of their actions. They fear the gifts of fortune from the apprehension of losing them, and lest they should be miserable, they embrace a life of voluntary wretchedness. How absurd is their choice, how perverse their understanding, to dread the evils without being able to support the blessings of the human condition. Either this melancholy madness is the effect of disease, or exercised on their own bodies by the tortures which are inflicted on fugitive slaves by the hand of justice. Such was the contempt of a profane magistrate for the monks as the chosen servants of God. Some of them were persuaded by his entreaties to embark on board the fleet, 
and it is observed to praise the Roman general that his days and nights were employed in prayer, fasting, and the occupation of singing psalms. The devout leader, who with such a reinforcement appeared confident of victory, avoided the dangerous rocks of Corsica, coasted along the eastern side of Sardinia, and secured his ships against the violence of the south wind, by casting anchor in the capacious harbor of Caligari at the distance of one hundred and forty miles from the African shore. Gildo was prepared to resist the invasion with all the forces of Africa. By the liberality of his gifts and promises, he endeavored to secure the doubtful allegiance of the Roman soldiers, whilst he attracted to his standard the distant tribes of Gaetulia and Ethiopia. He proudly reviewed an army of seventy thousand men, and boasted, with the rash presumption which is the forerunner of disgrace, that his numerous cavalry would trample under their horses' feet the troops of Mosasel, and involve in a cloud of burning sand the natives of the cold regions of Gaul and Germany. But the Moor, who commanded the legions of Honorius, was too well acquainted with the manners of his countrymen to entertain any serious apprehension of a naked and disorderly host of barbarians, whose left arm, instead of a shield, was protected only by mantle, who were totally disarmed as soon as they had darted their javelins from their right hand, and whose horses he had never seen. He fixed his camp of five thousand veterans in the face of a superior enemy, and, after the delay of three days, gave the signal of a general engagement. As Massasel advanced before the front with fair offers of peace and pardon, he encountered one of the foremost standard-bearers of the Africans, and, on his refusal to yield, struck him on the arm with his sword. The arm and the standard sunk under the weight of the blow, and the imaginary act of submission was hastily repeated by all the standards of the line. At this the disaffected cohorts proclaimed the name of their lawful sovereign. The barbarians, astonished by the defection of their Roman allies, dispersed, according to their custom, in tumultuary flight, and Massasel obtained the easy and almost bloodless victory. The tyrant escaped from the field of battle to the seashore, and threw himself into a small vessel, with the hope of reaching in safety some friendly port of the empire of the east. But the obstinacy of the wind drove him back into the harbor of Tabraca, which had acknowledged with the rest of the province the dominion of Honorius and the authority of his lieutenant. The inhabitants, as proof of their repentance and loyalty, seized and confined the person of Gildo in a dungeon, and his own despair saved him from the intolerable torture of supporting the presence of an injured and victorious brother. The captives and the spoils of Africa were laid at the feet of the emperor, but more sincere in the midst of prosperity still affected to consult the laws of the republic, and referred to the senate and people of Rome the judgment of the most illustrious criminals. Their trial was public and solemn, but the judges, in the exercise of this obsolete and precarious jurisdiction, were impatient to punish the African magistrates, who had intercepted the subsistence of the Roman people. The rich and guilty province was oppressed by the imperial ministers, who had a visible interest to multiply the number of the accomplices of Gildo. And if an edict of Honoria seems to check the malicious industry of informers, a subsequent edict, at the distance of ten years, 
continues and renews the prosecution of which has been committed in the time of general rebellion. The adherence of the tyrant who escaped the first fury of the soldiers and the judges might derive some consolation from the tragic fate of his brother, who could never obtain his pardon from the extraordinary services which he had performed. After he had finished an important war in the space of a single winter, Mosazel was received at the court of Milan with loud applause, affected gratitude, and secret jealousy. And his death, which perhaps was the effect of passage over a bridge, the Moorish prince who accompanied the master general of the West, was suddenly thrown from his horse into the river. The officious haste of the attendants who was on the countenance of Stilicho, and while they delayed the necessary assistance, the unfortunate Mosasel was irrecoverably drowned. The joy of the African triumph was happily connected with the nuptials of the emperor Honorius and of his cousin Maria, the daughter of Stilicho, and this equal and honorable alliance seemed to invest the powerful minister with the authority of a parent over his submissive pupil. The muse of Claudine was not silent on this propitious day. He sung in various and lively strains the happiness of the royal pair and the glory of the hero who confirmed their union and supported their throne. The ancient fables of Greece, which had almost ceased to be the object of religious faith, were saved from oblivion by the genius of poetry. The picture of the Cyprian grove, the seat of harmony and love, the triumphant progress of Venus over her native seas, and the mild influence which her presence diffused in the palace of Milan, expressed to every age the natural sentiments of the heart in the just and pleasing language of allegorical fiction. But the amorous impatience which Claudian attributes to the young prince must excite the smiles of the court, and his beautatious spouse, if she deserved the prize of beauty, had not much to fear or to hope from the passions of her lover. Honorius was only in the fourteenth year of his age. Serena, the mother of his bride, deferred by art of persuasion the consummation of the royal nuptials. Maria died a virgin after she had been ten years a wife, and the chastity of the emperor was secured by the coldness, perhaps, the debility of his constitution. His subjects, who had tentatively studied the character of their young sovereign, discovered that Honorius was without passions, and consequently without talents, and that his feeble and languid disposition was alike incapable of discharging the duties of his rank, or of enjoying the pleasures of his age. In his early youth he made some progress in the exercise of riding and drawing the bow, but he soon relinquished these fatiguing occupations, and the amusements of feeding poultry became the serious and daily care of the monarch of the West, who resigned the reins of empire to the firm and skillful hand of his guardian Stilicho. The experience of history will countenance the suspicion that a prince who was born in the purple received a worse education than the meanest peasant of his dominions, and that the ambitious minister suffered him to attain the age of manhood without attempting to excite his courage or to enlighten his understanding. The predecessors of Honorius were accustomed to animate by their example, or at least by their presence, the valor of the legions, and the dates of their laws attest the perpetual activity of their motions through the provinces of the Roman world. But the son of Theodosius passed the slumber of his life, a captive in his palace, a stranger in his country, 
and the patient, almost the indifferent spectator of the ruin of the Western Empire, which was repeatedly attacked and finally subverted by the arms of the barbarians. In the eventful history of a reign of twenty-eight years, it will seldom be necessary to mention the name of the Emperor Honorius. End of chapter 29, part 2